This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. In August this year, people all over the world, including millions of Australians, stopped to soak in the glory of our athletes at the Paralympics. One of the athletes who brought back gold and made Australia so proud is four-time Paralympian Madison de Rosario. She joins me today for an illuminating conversation about sport, identity and inclusion. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of Salesforce. In this episode, Maddie shares exactly what was going through her head in the final moments of her thrilling marathon win at the Paralympics in Tokyo. And she talks to us about why she's using her platform as an athlete with a disability to shape a better, more inclusive future for others in sport. Madison de Rosario, welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. It's such a thrill to have you here today. I'd like to start by acknowledging that wherever everybody is listening in from, we are all on land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging for their ongoing custodianship of this land. I'm on Camaragua land and I understand that you are in Olympic Park on Darug land. Welcome. Well, so many questions, Maddie. I don't, clearly the place to start is the Paralympics. Two gold, one bronze. On behalf of all of us, a huge congratulations. Have you come down off the high yet? Honestly, not entirely. Um, We've kind of started to come down off of it a little bit. It was such a surreal experience. There was such a lead up. I think there were so many moments there where we just did not know if they were going to go ahead at all. And and I don't think any member of the Paralympic team believed it would go ahead until our first staff members were actually down there in Tokyo, like once the Olympics had wrapped up. So it was the most unreal experience. I've been to a few games, but the entire team dynamic was so different than it's ever been before. It was so much closer just because it was such unusual circumstances. So absolutely unreal. I'm, I'm so proud to be part of the Australian Paralympic team. To get to kind of share those moments with, with those teammates is, yeah, the best parts of my life. Now, I noticed that you very nonchalantly threw in there, I've been to the Paralympics before. To be clear, this was your fourth Paralympic Games. Is that right? It was my fourth, yeah. My first Games was Beijing. I was I was 14, so I definitely started fairly early. And I, I wasn't expecting to be on that flight to Beijing at all. I was a very last-minute call-up to be a member of the 4 by 100 meter relay team. So, yeah, definitely kind of um, got thrown in the deep end with the career a little bit. But, yeah, no, Tokyo was the fourth Games. And we'll come back to that because I heard you quoted recently saying you want Brisbane to be your last. So we'll talk about that in a second. But tell us about the experience of Tokyo because of COVID, because of kind of the stop, go kind of motion that you talked about before the games. We didn't know whether they were going to go ahead. There was also a lot of, I think, concern about Tokyo going ahead in the midst of the pandemic. Can you share with us a little bit about the actual experience about what it was like to be in the village And compared to previous games that you've been at? Very different to previous games. I feel like every Games is so different. And Tokyo was was obviously different in so many more ways than we're expecting. And our Australian team going in had so much transparency with us. And that was one of the most amazing things in terms of preparing, I think, any information that was communicated to them, they would immediately make sure that was communicated to the larger team. So we definitely went in with quite a, a decent understanding of what it would look like. And and they definitely gave us all the worst case scenarios so we could prepare for whatever it was going to look like. 
And it was different, but it also created this amazing kind of team cohesion that I mentioned before, which wouldn't have really happened. So at the Paralympic team, we didn't have access to the dining hall. I understand the Olympians did, but I think they had like maybe 10 minutes when they walked in the door to when they were leaving again. And our team decided to just kind of cut that risk out entirely. And so our whole team, our allotment had a couple of dining kind of setups on the ground floor. And what that meant was usually the games, if you're going to head to the dining hall, I would normally wait for a couple of teammates from athletics who I've known forever. You sit, you chat, and then, then you head out again. But because it was in our allotment, rather than kind of waiting to like, you know, gather your friends and make it an occasion, you would just go down. And I ended up spending so much more time with different teammates from different sports who, you know, I, I've seen on social media, or I might have chatted to briefly in the gym or have heard about through other members, but never really gotten the chance to really talk to and definitely would never have gotten to have those conversations at a Paralympics where you're kind of just riding on everyone else's emotions and intensity. And they're just conversations I, I never would have gotten to have. So to get to kind of do that and be a part of that and to to chat to athletes before they went out to compete and then see them coming home after it, you felt like so much more involved in all of that. And that's not something I've ever gotten to experience at a Paralympic Games. Um, within my athletics team, for sure, but not across sports like I was able to in Tokyo. So that's something that I that I hope we're able to like retain that culture going forward because that was definitely one of my highlights. Yeah, nice. What about the other side though? Meeting athletes from other teams and other countries. Did you get any of that this time? Not really. So I race a lot of the same women all around the world throughout the four years of the Paralympic cycle, not just at the games. And so going two years without seeing them was actually also really unusual and getting to kind of like see everyone for the first time in two years at the most intense like moment of all of our careers in that four-year cycle was a little different to normal. You usually kind of ease into that. But yeah, it, it was kind of weird not really getting to see anyone internationally because it's we're, we're so competitive on the track and the road, but they're some of the most beautiful humans I've ever met in my life, the women that I race. And so we did miss out on that a little bit. But yeah, the marathon circuit is opening up again globally. So hopefully next year's a bit smoother. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. For us in Australia, I think we were all in lockdown when the Olympics and the Paralympics were on. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, we were so grateful that they went ahead. We watched so much more of the Olympics and the Paralympics, I think, than we usually would have. One, because it was in our time zone, but also people were at home. So I planned my meetings for those few weeks around what was happening at the Paralympics. Maddie, talk us through the last few minutes or last few seconds of the marathon, an incredible race, one where, you know, our hearts were racing as we watched you. Tell us what that was like. Oh, man. Um, the Games was such a roller coaster for me that kind of leading into that marathon, I think that was the most calm that I had felt the entire, you know, two weeks. And so the, the track component for me, I had a couple of like amazing races and I was so proud of myself and my performance team and of our results. But I also had some poorly put together races that was entirely my fault. I, I executed races quite poorly just from a lack of, you know, racing over the past two years. And so I definitely wasn't as switched on. So that was such an emotional roller coaster over five days on the track. I then had four days off and then the marathon and I was able to really take a step back and reset. And there is something quite calming about the marathon in that it's just, if you are fit enough and strong enough to the 42K, 
then that's all you need to be able to. And I knew I'd done that work. There is less tactics in it than the shorter stuff on the track. The longer track events, say the 5,000, are so heavily packed with tactics. Every decision matters. And, you know, you could be the fittest person there. If you make a, a single tactical error, that could be your entire race gone. Whereas the marathon is a little bit different. You know, I think you can have more trust in your in your physical prep and, and your body. And I, and I trust my body to be able to, to do that distance. And so it is quite a, a calming feeling going into it. I knew the course was really nice and, and how I was feeling. And the pack stayed together for quite a while. It, it's a flat course, which means it's hard to drop any individual athlete. In wheelchair racing, you're either good up a hill or, or down a hill or cornering. And so anytime those things happen, the pack will break up every single time and you can see people's strengths and weaknesses. But because it was such a nice course, no one could break away. We ended up with this big pack the entire marathon. And so when it came down to that last two kilometers, I knew there was this big uphill coming up and my coach had done the course recce for me. And when she came back from that, she basically told me that there is this hill that starts about 4K out ends about 2k out it starts with like quite a steady but not that difficult incline and then there is a big kicker at the end of it and I remember her telling me that this hill could decide the race you could win or you could lose the race on this hill and I'm a decent climber but I'm not very good down a hill. So tell us about that because to me it would seem that downhill would be easier because you need less energy to get down than you do to get up. Absolutely but there are so many athletes better than me down a hill. So it's a reprieve for myself, but others will get down a hill much quicker than I will. And the Swiss woman who was in, in second with me in that same lead pack as me, she's the best in the world down a hill and I'm one of the best up. So it was kind of, I think we both were fully aware of each other's skill sets, you know, leading into the last part of this race. And that course was tricky because you have the one uphill followed by an immediate downhill. It plateaus for a bit, but because the stadium is a sunken stadium, there is a second downhill to get down onto the track. So not only did I know that I had to reach the top of that hill before Manuela, the the Swiss athlete, I needed enough of a gap that it could carry me for two downhills. And I remember making that gap and just not being sure if it was enough and knowing that I wouldn't know until we hit the stadium in about another kilometer. So I, I remember coming over that hill and just giving it absolutely everything that I had. And I kind of remember thinking that, you know, at this point I've done just over 40K, I can do this kick to the end. It's like two more K, we're nearly done. I could see my Garmin like counting down the kilometers. And then midway through that kick, I was like, I may have made a terrible mistake. It caught up to me so fast. That fatigue just set in, but I'd committed to that decision. So it was just committing to it till we got into the stadium and coming down that last hill, I still had a bit of a gap. I remember taking one last look behind me, realizing she was definitely closing the gap, but I still had a little bit. And an empty stadium, the commentary is so loud. So I could hear the commentary saying I had that gap in 200 meters. I could hear them saying that she was closing the gap on me. And then I could just hear this like wave of sound from the Australians in the stadium. And there wasn't that many of them, but they were so loud and they were just kind of yelling me through that last 300 meters. And I knew she was closing and I kind of, There is this point where there's no more decisions to make in a race. I just needed to give everything I had. I need my body to do absolutely everything. You kind of just hand over control to your body to do everything that it needs to do. And thankfully on that day, it was enough just to get me over that line first. But yeah, one of the absolute highlights of my career. Oh, and, you know, even as you're talking through the race, I'm feeling the same kind of exhilaration that we all felt while we were watching the race. It was quite an incredible thing. You talked about the empty stadium. 
Was that an odd experience to perform in front of an empty stadium? Because I imagine usually you get so much energy from the crowds. You do. It was very strange. Thankfully, we'd known so far in advance that that was going to be the case. I think when it's unexpected, it can be quite jarring. I think, you know, being aware that was going to happen, you kind of got your head around that, you know, months out. But it was strange. When you race in a big stadium, you kind of come out and you're kind of flooded with the sound. And then for me, once the gun goes, it's like it just goes completely silent. And it's like the minute you cross that line, it all comes back and it's quite an intense experience. So it was very strange not having that. But it was also very cool getting to hear like the individual voices of my teammates as well. That was also really, really special. So, yeah, good and bad. Yeah, nice. So let's go back to the fact that you've said you'd like Brisbane to be your last games. You've been to four. There's two more before Brisbane. That's a long athletic career, Maddie. You put your body through so much, you know, with training, with performing. That's still 11 years away. Talk us through the thinking there. I mean, obviously performing, I imagine performing in Brisbane would be an incredible experience because it's home. Yeah, so I got to have the home games experience through Commonwealth Games and that was unreal and I can only imagine what a Paralympic Games at home would feel like and and when I talk to different athletes who have been able to compete at a home games, I talk to my coach about, you know, Sydney 2000, for example, like the way she speaks about it, like I want that. And I, I would love to get to experience that once. And the timing is, it works, but only just. <laughs> I'll be 37 or 38 come Brisbane, which is a realistic retirement age for the longer distances. Whether I'm still racing everything on the track at that point, I'm not even really sure what this looks like. This is like not a very well thought out plan. It could be really good. And I love this sport so much. I love this kind of journey you get to go on, like, you know, mentally and physically and emotionally to work out how far you can actually push yourself and what that looks like and and how far you can go. And I get to surround myself with the most amazing people in terms of my immediate performance team who I train with every day here in Sydney, but my larger Paralympic team as well. It, it really is a family. And, you know, I love being in that space. And for as long as I love this sport, I will definitely keep doing it. And in that 11 years, that changes and I fall out of love with it. I will definitely stop and I'll be at complete peace, not making it to Brisbane. But for as long as I love it, I will. Yeah. I think that's a great attitude. And, you know, watching you in the Paralympic Games, Maddie, I imagine that there are lots of young girls who looked at your example, looked at you, do so well, and you're such an incredible role model. Does that excite you that you are that role model for so many young girls and women who watch you do what you do? It excites me and it also stresses me out a great deal. Um, It definitely is a responsibility that I think I take very, very seriously. I remember growing up and not having many role models that looked like me. And I remember seeing, you know, Louis Savage as, as the only person that looked like me. And, and it is entirely coincidental that I've chosen the exact same career path down to the same events that we do. And she's your coach, right? She was my coach, yeah. Um, but there weren't many people that looked like me. And I, I'm very aware that there still isn't that many. And so I understand the impact that you can have when that spotlight isn't shared as evenly as it should be. And so I would love by the time I get to the end of my career, my voice being so much quieter because there's so many others in that space. And I want, you know, different opinions to mine and I want just so much variety and authenticity in in all those 
opinions and voices. And, and I think that's so much more valuable than just several loud voices. As of right now, though, unfortunately, that's not the case. There's not too many people in this space who, who are listened to when they speak. And I do recognize that that is a platform that I do hold. And so that does come with a lot of responsibility because your words carry more weight than they deserve when that's the environment in which you're speaking. And that is a very big responsibility. And I, and I do take that very seriously. And I try to kind of do that as you know authentically as possible, but also as considerately as possible. I think when your words carry more weight than they should, you kind of need to be making sure you're speaking more broadly than my own experiences and what I believe. It's more you want to be reflecting your community as well as possible. So the conversations that you know, we have outside of the spotlight are so important, more important than, you know, the moments that you do get because you want everyone to be heard and understood and felt. And I think that's so important. So yeah, it's definitely not something that I take lightly. Well, Maddie, I imagine that there are so many men and women, young girls and young boys who look at you and are inspired by what you do. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of diversity and inclusion. You've talked about the lack of voices in the space that you're in and the lack of role models who look like you and who have a voice in the disability sector. You know, we talk about diversity in all its guises, whether it's, you know, from a First Nations perspective, a multicultural perspective, a disability perspective, LGBTQI, like there are so many different facets of that. But with regards to disability, let me ask you two questions. One, do you think we're moving fast enough? And how important do you think are events like the Paralympic Games to really raise the profile of how important it is? We're moving in the right direction. I would argue that it's not fast enough. I recognise that we're constantly moving and that's a huge positive. At no point since I've kind of you know been aware of, of this space, at no point has it stopped. And I think that's a huge positive to note that it has been constantly moving in the right direction, admittedly much slower than I would like. And I think one of the things that happens to anyone in, in any of those minority groups is that you feel the need to justify the very space that you take up. And your whole life is shaped by this kind of one identity that's very much forced upon you. And I know a lot of people I know are, are proud people with disabilities where, you know, we're proud of women, we're proud people of color and all of that. And we should be able to do that on our own terms, not what is being imposed upon us. And that's one of the big problems that I struggled with growing up was how did I reshape my identity to break out of what I was being told that I had to be and what I was. And for me, that took sport, but that was a huge catalyst. It was, you know, going to a Paralympic Games is what broke that for me. And that's not a luxury that's afforded to every single person. That's such an extreme way to do that. And and so I would love to see a generation of, of kids growing up never having to redefine the entirety of who they are, getting to learn who they are in all of their facets from the very beginning, rather than having to fixate on, on one because they're told that that is who they are. And that's what I want to use my platform for. And that's what I think all of us in our own different ways are trying to create, not just for disability, but, but every single one of those minority groups. And the quicker this does move, the sooner we get there, the less people who lose years of their life trying to fit into a mold in a world that just isn't designed for them and doesn't benefit them. So the other part is I think that when it comes to inclusion and we say, you know, workplaces, we frame it in a way that benefits the minority as if making workplaces inclusive is great because we'll employ more people with disabilities, employ more women. But we as a society, we as a business, we as any organization are better we're better when we're inclusive. We excel, we, we benefit from those opinions, from those voices. 
we're more authentic and we're shaped by the entirety of our community. And But yeah, as an entire society, we benefit from minorities taking up the space that we deserve. And I think that's one of the kind of ways that we need to frame this differently. It's not to benefit the minority, it's to benefit the entirety. And that's not something that we always see even when we think of inclusion. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, ultimately we all want to live our best life. Whatever that looks like, we all want to live the absolute best version of ourselves that we can. And actually, depending on who you are and what your circumstances are, that is not always open to you. You know, there are places that people are excluded from, you know, whether it's because you're in a wheelchair and you can't get in or the company doesn't have accessibility Uh, worked out or whether you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person and you're not welcome or you can't take your authentic selves to work. It is really about creating places where we can all go and all be part of this life experience. Absolutely. And it's something that every single person is entitled to and deserves and and we should be able to take for granted and it's something that a small part of our communities are able to take for granted because that's who it is designed by and for whereas the majority of us like don't 100% fit into that and and I feel like it kind of like ties into that concept of like universal design right once things are more accessible either physically or, or socially environmentally for one person it makes it so much easier for everybody else as well and I think easing that discomfort around one minority group is going to move everything forward. And I think that's one of the big responsibilities that women in sport and women in, in every industry has is that we're obviously the largest minority and we're demanding to take up space right now when it's so exciting to see and get to be a part of and, and to see the changes happening so rapidly is, is amazing. And I think we have the ability to bring other minority groups with us in that space, which, you know, doesn't always happen. It's something I would love to see happen more, but it does happen in little ways. And, and that's exciting to kind of see that movement happening as one movement rather than just lots of kind of fragmented, like individual ones. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes that's a mistake we make. We think, you know, if we just fix gender diversity today, tomorrow we can look at First Nations and the next day we'll look at multicultural and, you know, we create a hierarchy, whereas the truth is we should be doing it all at once. You know, everybody should be taking everybody else along the journey with them. Yeah, and I feel like I have like front row seats that obviously I'm, I'm a woman in sport, but I'm also a person with a disability in sport. And so I can kind of see the Paralympic movement is like about 20 years behind the women in sport movement, for example. And it's the same language. Most of the language that I use to talk about disability, I've, I've drawn from the feminist movement because it's the same structure it's the same inequalities just different details that's kind of populating it so yeah I 100% agree it all needs to move forward I think together it's so much more powerful together. One of the things that came out of the Olympics and the Paralympics was the inequity in pay so we found out during the games that the government was paying I think it was 20k for a gold medal 15 for a silver and 10 for a bronze for an Olympic athlete and Paralympians weren't getting anything And I think that was probably the first time that such a focus was put on that. I mean, I know there were people like Chloe Dalton in particular who really raised the profile of that debate. And then later in September, the government came to the table and said that they would pay exactly the same amounts. But that's a long time coming, isn't it? So on that, the money for the Olympians comes from the Olympic Committee and they have access to the finances to pay their Olympians at. The Paralympic Committee doesn't and it's basically the result of that deeper issue of inequality and 
I think to see that like have such a harsh light shone on it was really interesting. And and what Chloe did is exactly what we were just talking about, where Chloe's built her platform as an athlete, as an incredibly successful athlete, and she's used her platform to move that women in sport movement further. And I know how much work and energy she, she's put into that. And she recognized that this inequality was happening and Paralympians weren't in a position to do anything about it at that point. One, none of us individually had the platform that she'd kind of curated through her sport and what she'd kind of built alongside sport, but also that we were also busy at a Paralympic Games. And the way she was able to to recognize that while dealing with an emotional rollercoaster herself, because she just missed out on Olympic selection due to injury as well, to recognize that she was in a really unique position where she understood the struggle of inequality as a woman in sport, whilst not having ever experienced the disability sport experience, but knew that she had enough understanding from everything that she'd experienced and conversations that she'd had with myself, with other Paralympians, to, to use her voice in that moment to impact very real change. And that's, I guess, what I mean by the women in sport movement, moving other movements with it. That's exactly what she did in a very real way and got enormous results immediately. And that's the power of that, of using a larger movement to kind of bring everything else along with it. And Chloe did that. And I, I remember calling her, I think before the marathon, after my track program, just to say, like, you've done this. You know, you've used your voice to create real change immediately. And, and that's exactly you know, what I mean when I say that they can all move together and Chloe just embodied that. Yeah, there was an incredible, incredible effort and really incredible to see the government finally step up and notice and uh, acknowledge the inequity and pay our Paralympic athletes because you brought as much joy as the Olympic athletes did. You know, there's no difference. And I imagine the, the training clearly and the effort you go to is as great as any other athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Maddie, sport is a difficult career choice. You get injuries, you, you know, have highs and lows like every other career choice. But one of the things we're exploring on this podcast is how women deal with two things, how they pick themselves up after a bad race or a bad day and how you stand up again. And where you find that inner strength from. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Um, I'm going to start with the second part of it. I definitely did not always have the inner strength and anytime any kind of speed bump happened it rattled me a lot and I think what I discovered I was doing was doing for me sport for for all the wrong reasons I nearly stepped away from the sport after the London Paralympics in 2012 because you know I I'd made it to, to two games I was surrounded by people telling me that I could be incredibly successful but also I was battling with the fact that I didn't think I had the mindset of an athlete. I'm not the most competitive person. And that's a really hard thing to fit into a very competitive job. And I thought that in order to be successful, I was going to have to become that person. I was, you know, I'm coached by Louise Savage and she is to this day, the most competitive human I have met in my life. (laughs) She's, She's fiery and she's passionate and, and I admire it so much, but it's not me. And so I, I grew up in this sport and I grew up surrounded by these people who, who I admired. They're incredible people. And in trying to emulate them, I think I lost a huge part of who I was. Or I never took the time to work out who I was. I got through two Paralympic Games. I was, I was 18 in, in London and thinking that I needed to step away because I didn't think I could be the person that I thought I needed to be. 
And it was Louise who basically told me that she had so much faith in my potential and in what I could be if I chose to do it. And that if I was going to choose to do it, we had to work at what that looked like. And it was okay if it was completely different to anything that I was seeing around me. And it took a couple of years. This definitely wasn't a short conversation and it definitely didn't happen, you know, overnight. It was redesigning the athlete that I was and taking the time to work out who I was as a person, why I wanted this and what that looked like. How do I then motivate myself to get to those obviously quite lofty goals? I I knew I had such high goals, but no idea how to achieve them given the person that I was. And so we changed our entire approach to to racing, to training, to to everything, who I surrounded myself with, what my performance team looked like, and to one that really benefited me as an athlete and me as a person. And so now when I do kind of, you know, run into any of those roadblocks, so we just had two years without competing, which I think previously would have absolutely floored me. You know, it's it's a pretty big hit as someone whose job is to compete. But I I recognize that what drives me is those moments of success and failure are so brief. And yet we spend so much time planning for them and, you know, designing our whole lives as as a sacrifice to achieve those moments of success where they make up like, what, 2% of our time? Not even, they're moments. And I remember winning my first world title, thinking it would be this amazing thing. It would change who I was. I'd be a better athlete. I'd, I'd be all of these things. And the next morning you wake up and you realize you're the exact same person, just you've ticked that box. And so what I think became clear to me is that you kind of exist in that 98%. And what do you want that to look like? And I've designed a life. I've surrounded myself with people. I have goals, but it's all designed around how I get to live and who I get to be in that space. And so when I do have those moments where things seem very challenging or things go terribly wrong, the reality is I still have that. I'm still just immersed in, in, in this world that I've designed that lets me be all those things. And I think that's so important. And and that's what motivates me as well. It, it's less about those goals and and more so about who I get to be while I'm achieving them. I get to be a person who who I enjoy being, who I'm proud of being, and I'm surrounded by people who, who I'm proud to, to call my friends and my teammates. And I think that that is so much more important. And I think loving that entire process just makes those speed bumps seem so much more inconsequential in the scheme of things. Yeah, it's a great message. So you've talked a little bit about your career. How did you end up doing wheelchair athletics? Was it planned from an early age? Was it serendipitous? Was there a little bit of both? It was definitely not planned. I was shocked. My whole family was shocked when I ended up in a career of sport considering the no competitive zone in my body. Um, But I have two sisters and I'm in the middle and we're all very close in age and we all grew up playing sport together. We had, you know, a very active family, which I think is, you know, very much the norm. And I would just get on board with whatever they were doing. And both my sisters loved soccer. That was the big one for both of them. And they played on the same team. And so I would kind of just be the world's worst goalkeeper and just hope that they did a good enough job out there on the pitch that I would never see the ball and it was all fine. And I just, I just loved doing whatever they were doing. And at some point, as a girl with a disability, those you know, everyone around you gets stronger and faster and bigger and, and you don't, you can't really quite keep up in the same way. And that was the point where I started exploring the wheelchair sports options. And I grew up in WA and our um, our national basketball program is, is centralized um, out of WA. So that was kind of the big one. 
And I remember trying it like three, four times. And I'm I'm so uncoordinated. I can't catch a power ball. <laughs> that Maddie makes no sense to me. You're a Paralympian with two golds and a bronze from the last games. It, it, it spins me a little bit that you say you're uncoordinated. Yeah, I'm good. Like like the most like technical least coordination required sport. Um, so I was trying basketball for I think the third or fourth time, and the guy it was it's a small community. So the man that coached the basketball was a part of the Wish Track and Road program as well. He was a man named Frank Ponson. He was, you know, at the very first Paralympic Games. Like he is like the history of the sport in a man. And he basically pulled me to the side and told me I was terrible at basketball and like not at all an <laughs> asset to the team. Um, but he had a track chair in the storage room. I wanted to try it. And I tried it out in like the parking lot of this basketball stadium and just absolutely fell in love with it. I was in this race chair that was way too big for me. I had all this foam either side of me to try and keep me like the middle of the chair and definitely did not fit me. But, but I love that it was individual. I love that, you know, you put work in and it came back out immediately, which is still what I love so much about it. And yeah, just absolutely fell in love with it. And yeah, never turned back. Nice, nice. So it's a great story because I think doesn't matter what your career is, so many of us just fall into something. You know, it's um, circumstances, it's an opportunity, it's serendipity. Maddie, we're looking at the next 10 years ahead of us. COVID's provided this unique opportunity, I think, where lots of organisation people, we're pivoting. We've had to do things differently. What's your hope? What's your, from a leadership perspective, what's your hope for the next 10 years for Australia? Ooh, um... A lot of it would be around what we spoke about earlier, creating a space where people aren't aren't justifying their entire existence or having their identity kind of pigeonhole them. And I think to do that, it requires individuals to create that space. And that's where our leaders are so important. If I think about all of the, the moments in my career that really defined me, my life that have really defined me, there has been someone with me who has helped me shape that. And Louise is, is one of the most influential people in my life. And when I was considering stepping away from the sport, it, it was her that was there that created that space to let me work out who I was. So I think having leaders who are able to, to create space to allow people to, to grow into everything they need to be in order to be successful, but also whole entire, you know, people who, who are able to really embrace who they are, I think is, you know, that's so dependent on individuals creating that space. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's huge. Yeah, thank you. And I have no doubt that with voices like yours fighting for that, you know, fingers crossed we get there sooner. It has been so joyous to talk to you. Huge congratulations from everybody on your incredible success. And we can't wait to see what's next and what your journey looks like from here to Brisbane, if that's what it is, or the next Paralympics. Congratulations, Maddie. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. I don't know about you, but when Maddie was describing the last few moments of the marathon in Tokyo, my heart was racing and I felt like I was watching it all over again. The discussion with Maddie today was such a wonderful reminder that leadership comes in all guises. Maddie is writing the book on what it means to be a leader in sport, effectively using her platform to promote inclusivity and diversity in all parts of our society. After Tokyo, there is no doubt that her platform is strong and her message is more important than ever. 
Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons, produced by Women's Agenda. This episode was produced by Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. We'll see you next week with another fabulous guest. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.